Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address, entitled, A Man After God's Own Heart, was given on February 17, 1981, by Von J. Featherstone, then a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm honored and delighted to be with all of you here this morning. Appreciate your being here. I have uh, considered as the remarks which I'd like to make, having a heart like unto God's own heart. And I want to enlarge in that in a few minutes. However, first I'd like to pay a special tribute to a man that I respect great, greatly, grateful, greatly, Dr. Hugh Nibley here at BYU, who a man who quietly and effectively, brilliantly loves, honors, and defends this great church. He is a man of great, great integrity, rare wisdom, unmatched judgment. What a great blessing he's been to the church over the years. I love, honor, and respect him. I think no one has ever had to ask which side of an issue Dr. Nibley is on. His work with the Book of Mormon, Ancient Studies, Leadership versus Management, one of the great talks ever given at a devotional, all are wonderful tributes to the Church. There is a saying that states, never walk on the message. Dr. Nibley has never done that, not once. There are far, far too many who do. BYU has had a profound influence on the, the Church in many ways. Dr. Henry Eyring, who is the Commissioner of Church Education, is in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Two of the Quorum of the Twelve are past presidents of BYU, uh, Jeffrey Holland and Henry Eyring, or uh, Dallin Oaks. I think that's a marvelous tribute to this student, to this uh, university and the, to the student body here. And then, uh, Years ago, I heard that Russell LeBaron Briggs, a, a deceased a member of the Harvard Law School, student came in one day and asked, uh, or the dean asked him why he had not been there the day before to take a test. And the, man, the student said, well, I was not feeling very well, sir. And uh, LeBaron Briggs said, I think you'll find, my young friend in life, that most of the work in the world is done by people who aren't feeling very well. We will never know how much Rex Lee has done while he's not feeling very well. He has added greatly to the stature of BYU. He is also a man of great integrity, a man who has been a wonderful present here, has lifted and moved this institution. We should never forget the days of President Rex Lee. He has done it well and as well as it could be done, and he did it when he wasn't feeling very well. God bless you, presently. Just want to say a word about Lavelle Edwards. He's a great coach. Love him. He's <laughs> a great man. There are divergent opinions about coaching. You can find everything from one end to the other, but you can serve the whole world over, search the whole world over, never find excellent, or you can find excellent coaches, but you can't find great and excellent noble men. You'll find few men who love youth, have absolute integrity, and uncompromising standard of values, as does Lavelle. He stands head and shoulders above almost all others in his profession in character, and character does count. I imagine sometimes Lavelle feels like 
the man who went into a, an institution down in southern Utah to get a loan. He talked with the banker for about a half an hour, and finally the banker said, well, I don't know whether to give you the loan or not. And uh, but he said, I'll tell you what, I have one glass eye, and if you can tell me which one it is, I'll let you have the loan. Without any hesitation, the man said, well, it's your left eye. The banker said, yes, but how did you know so quick? Well, it's the one that showed a little sympathy, I imagine. <laughs> Elder uh, Lavelle could appreciate a little sympathy about now. Now I mentioned I'd come back to this theme of having a heart likened to God's own heart. David is the only man I know who is described as having a heart like unto God's own heart. In 1 Samuel, then again in the 13th chapter of Acts, President Harold B. Lee said, It is my conviction that every man who is called to a high place in this church will have to pass through tests not devised by human hands by which our Father numbers them among a united group of leaders who are willing to follow the apostles and prophets of the living God and be loyal and true as witnesses and exemplars of the truths they teach. I qualify. I am willing to raise my hand high and go where they want me to go and do what they want me to do and be what they want me to do. I, I believe with all of my heart that as we measure up, you are going to be tested greatly in this life, more than you will know at this instant. And so as we talk about someone who has a heart like unto God's own heart, let me just talk about the Atonement for a few minutes. The Atonement was the most exquisite, supernal act of charity ever in all eternity performed. It required the greatest courage and absolute discipline more than we would ever believe or suppose, and will have the greatest impact on mankind so long as time shall last, as, or the earth shall stand, or there shall be one man upon the face thereof uh, left. And I think that's what Moroni would have said also about this great thing, the Atonement. Now, we talk about the Atonement. It opens our eyes, the eyes of our understanding, as to what God's own heart is like. Must have been difficult not only for Jesus to go through that, but especially for his heavenly Father. All of my life, I've spoken a great deal about charity and about love and about mercy, and somehow I've kind of left justice undone and thought justice will take care of itself. Isn't it interesting that uh, in the forty-second chapter of Alma, it describes mercy and justice, and it states all his demands regarding justice. And when it refers to uh, mercy, it says, And uh, mercy claimeth all which is her own. We name our sons Justin and Justice, and we may name our daughters Faith and Hope and Charity and Mercy. Now, when we think about justice, we have to go back to the, the 12th chapter of the 32nd verse of Alma, where he talks about justice according to the supreme goodness of God. Lately, I have decided that I need to talk more about justice. We don't understand justice completely. And there is so much out in the world that seems unjust and unfair that it's probably a good time to, to discuss this. Who suffers most, the guilty or the innocent? The adulterer can go see the bishop. If he or she has truly repented, the bishop can say, On behalf of the Church, you are forgiven and they leave the office, and that burden is lifted. What about the innocent? Who suffers most, the adulterer or the mother and father with a wayward son or daughter? 
Oh, where is my wandering boy tonight, the boy of my tenderest care, the boy who was once my joy and light, the child of my love and prayer? Oh, once he was pure as the morning dew as he knelt at his mother's knee. No face was so bright, no heart was so true, none was as sweet as he. Oh, if I could see him now, my boy, as fair as an olden time, his prattle, his smile would make home a joy and life a merry chime. Go find my wandering boy tonight and search for him wherever you will. And bring him, him to me with all of his blight and tell him I loved him, love him still. Oh, where is my wandering boy tonight? Oh, where is my wandering boy? My heart o'erflows, for I love him he knows. Oh, where is my wandering boy? When will that go away? It won't. Not until the straying son or daughter comes back home. Is it just that someone should suffer innocently? The parents are innocent quite often, and uh, they hurt and they ache and they pray, and it, won't, it will not go away. Who suffers most, the incest perpetrator or the incest victim? Little ones, hardly old enough barely to even get around, and sometimes violated at a very tender age. Who suffers most, the fornicator? The, the stealer, the, the uh, thief, those who are involved in robbery of any kind, the, those involved in drug, drugs and homosexuality, other, homosexuality and other perversions, or do sometimes the innocent, the paraplegic and the quadriplegic, those with debilitating diseases, and we could name dozens of others, the woman who's been involved in a divorce or her husband has, and the innocent partnership of those two. I believe sometimes the innocent suffer far, far more than the guilty, and that would not be justice, would it? It wouldn't be fair. And so when we think about those who go to the bishop and confess concerns, we, we oftentimes find that lying takes place. Now, lying is an interesting thing. You can lie to a bishop and you can lie to a state president, or anyone can, but they can't lie to the spirit. And so quite often, people who have been offended and have told the truth and someone else tells the lie to the bishop, and the bishop has a difficult time deciding who is telling the truth. Would you remember the fault is not in the bishop and the fault is not in the state president, for, for goodness sakes. The fault is in the liar. And that's where we need to put the blame, not, not with the wonderful bishops and stake presidents who about all they can do to make it right. If I walked down the street and I had $200 in my pocket and someone walked up to me and stuck a, a gun in my ribs and said, give me your money, and I handed it to him, and I deliberately said, put it up here where everyone, everyone could see it. And uh, if, if a person violates me, I don't have to go to see the bishop to see if a disciplinary council needs to be held on me. What I have to do is just simply somehow feel bad that I've been violated. A person who has been involved in incest, who's been involved in abuse of any kind against his or her will, or let's include rape, there is no transgression. Not as long as time shall last or the earth shall stand. or there shall be one man upon the face thereof. I believe in God's great justice that those who are consigned into homes where he knows they will be violated, that somehow he will reach down and judge them as if that had never happened, 
that would only be just. It would only be merciful. And, and those who have perpetrated great frauds and great deceit and abuse on others, they may get out of this life without ever having confessed it, without ever anyone having believed that they didn't do it or that they did do it. And so they would escape. And, and we all think, well, that's not fair. The, the innocent suffer and the guilty do not. No, justice is according to the supreme goodness of God. And by and by, all those who have been involved will pay the cost. We will either suffer or repent. There isn't any way around that. So I'm so grateful for justice. Now then, if the sinful one can go in and sit down with the bishop and have that burden relieved, then why should not the innocent, those who have cancer and see a, a widow slowly dying, or a wife slowly dying, where he would eventually become the widower, or where he dies and his wife will, would uh, be left alone, to those who have other kinds of, of uh, debilitating diseases or the quadriplegic who goes through life that way, isn't it only just that somehow the atonement covered that? In the seventh chapter of Alma, the Lord talks about that he suffered not only for the transgressions and sins of the world, but for our afflictions and our illnesses and our sicknesses of the world. That's the part of the atonement that I have missed somehow. And I want to suggest to you it is not left undone. The justice, according to the supreme goodness of God, will be satisfied. And when we have a heart like unto God's own heart, we know that that will take place. Now the, the uh, innocent one must do the same thing that the guilty do. That is, they must go to him who has a right to lift that off of their hearts. President Harold B. Lee said some years back, I came to a night some years ago when upon my bed, I realized if I would be worthy of the high place to which I had been called, I must love and forgive every soul that walks this earth. And now, if you have been violated, if you've been abused as a child or as an adult or later on in this life, would you remember that we must forgive the offending one? Justice, according to the supreme goodness of God, means that we do turn it over to him. It will not be left undone. We can have that absolute assurance. That would only be just. But we must take it off of our hearts. Now, maybe a modern psychiatrist would say, well, you don't get healed that way, but you do. You do get healed by turning justice over to God and you forgiving and mercy. We must be merciful if we, if we would obtain mercy. So the Lord can lift all things from us. And once we have turned it over to him and simply said, it's between that person, that woman, and God, and I forgive them. And then simply the burden will be lifted as quietly and easily as if you were sitting here today and had those problems of the past and could in your heart forgive and just simply turn to the Savior. And through his atonement, those sicknesses and illnesses and the abuses will be lifted from us. That would only be right. Now, we wonder why the Lord permits such things. And I was talking with a wonderful lady recently. We shared the scripture together. And when Namulek saw the pains of women and children who were consumed, consuming in the fire, he also was pained and he said unto Alma, how can we witness this awful scene? Now, would you think about incest and rape and abuse? 
Therefore, let us stretch forth our hands and exercise the power of God which is in us and save them from the flames. But Alma said unto him, The Spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth mine hand. For behold, the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory. And he does suffer that they may do this thing, or that the people may do this thing unto them according to the hardness of their hearts, that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just. That is justice according to the supreme goodness of God. And the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them in the last day. The innocent must forgive the perpetrator, then transfer to the the burden to the Savior, and that is justice. That, again, does not mean that it's left undone. It just means that we've turned it over to him. Now, <clears throat> to those who have sinned and had that experience of having the atonement wrought in their life, I love the Savior for his mercy, and I love mercy with all of my heart and soul, and I love justice equally as much. There's a verse that all of you have heard, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. But the king could, and the king can, and the king will, if we will but come unto him. That's one of the great things that would draw us where we have a heart like unto God's own heart, is to understand what motivated Christ in, in the uh, great atonement. It was the greatest, most significant act ever in eternity, as I stated. And then, would you also take this as a second bit of counsel of one who has a heart like unto God's own heart? There's a statement that says, I believe the test of a great man is humility. I do not mean by humility the doubt in one's own personal power, but really, truly, great men have the curious feeling that greatness is not in them, but through them. And they see the divine in every other human soul and are foolishly, endlessly, incredibly merciful. I believe we would be incredibly merciful if we had a heart like unto God's own heart. Walter Malone is known for a lot of things. He's in the Tennessee Hall of Fame. His name ought to be there. If all he did is write the poem that I'm going to quote to you in a minute, he ought to be there. It gives, I guess, a Christ-like attitude to many things, but many of you will appreciate it. It, it, In it we find hope and absolution. He said, uh, They do me wrong who come no more about opportunity. Excuse me. The, The verse is about opportunity. They do me wrong and say I come no more when once I knock and fail to find you in. For every day I stand outside your door and bid you wake and rise to fight and win. Wail not for precious chances passed away. Weep not for golden ages on the wane. And here it is. At night I burn the records of the day. At sunrise every soul is born again. Laugh like a boy at splendors that have sped. To vanish joys be blind and deaf and dumb. My judgment seals the dead past with the dead, but never binds a moment yet to come. Though deep in mire... Wring not your hands and weep. I lift my arm to all who say I can. No shame-faced outcast ever sank so deep, but yet might rise again to be a man. Dost thou behold thy lost youth all aghast? Dost reel from righteous retribution's blow? Then turn from blighted archives of the past 
and find its future's pages white as snow. Art thou a mourner? Rouse thee from thy spell. Art thou a sinner? Sins can be forgiven. Each morning brings thee wings to flee from hell. Each night a star to guide thy soul to heaven. Walter Malone had a heart like unto God's own heart. You can't use that type of beautiful wording in a great verse without having a heart like unto God's. Anyone who can offer hope is blessed in any ways. I just uh, shared at the temp Bountiful Temple dedication a little story about a family that had a new little couple. and They had a baby boy, and they were thought he was so splendid and so special. They decided they would name him Amazing. And... Uh, so uh, they watched him grow up, and he went through grade school and high school, and he really never did anything outstanding. What he did was rather mundane, and he was rather ordinary, and so he became the brunt of jokes. He got married and moved on his father's farm and never did anything outstanding the rest of his life. And all of his life, he was the brunt of jokes, always about his name. Late in life, he said to his wife, When I die, would you please not have that name, Amazing, put on the grave marker? Would you put something else, but please don't put my name, and maybe the jokes will stop. Well, after he died, she kept her trust, and she had inscribed, Here lies a man who loved and was faithful to his wife for 60 years. Now the people walk by the cemetery, and they see that grave marker and point and say, That's amazing. <laughs> I just got a letter today in the office from uh, George Romney's wife and, and uh, Lenore, and in it I just want to read a couple of sentences. That you too love George was evident, and how I love you for that. Your recognizing his greatness was wonderful to me. Indeed, ours was a fabulous love story. How I adore him. I believe he was the most wonderful husband in the world. There's a statement that says, Come and grow old with me. The best in life is yet to be. One day you'll understand that and have different feelings about it. Marion Wright Edelman uh, told the story of Jean Thompson. Jean Thompson was a teacher. On the first day of school, she said to all of her children, I love all of you children. But Marion Wright Edelman said that sometimes teachers lie, and Jean Thompson had lied. And uh, she didn't love all of the students, and she didn't love them equally. One particular boy, Teddy Stollard, was there at her class, and his hair was usually mussed up, and his mouth hung open. He had dull eyes, and she didn't want to be around him. He didn't smell very good, and there were some other problems. He was unattractive to her. Well, she went back through the records, and she found out a little bit about Teddy Stollard, and his first grade teacher had recorded, Teddy is a good boy. He shows promise in his work and attitude, but he has a poor home situation. Second grade, Teddy is a good boy. He does what he is told, but he is too serious. His mother is terminally ill. Third grade, Teddy is falling behind in his work. He needs help. His mother died this year. His father shows no interest. Fourth grade, Teddy is in deep waters. He is in need of psychiatric help. He is totally withdrawn. Christmas came, and the students brought gifts. And all of them were beautifully wrapped, except one that was wrapped in a brown paper sack and taped together with scotch tape. It was Teddy's gift. She opened all of them and saved his till last. When she opened it, 
a rhinestone bracelet with most of the rhinestones missing had fallen out onto her desk. And then she opened up the other part and there was a bottle of perfume about this high with about that much perfume in the bottom. The children began to mock and laugh and Jean Thompson did something noble. She put the bracelet on and then she put some perfume on her and said, now, doesn't that look nice and don't I smell nice? And the students picked up the cue. That night, after everyone else had left, Teddy Stollard waited at school and when they were all gone, he went up to Jean Thompson and said, today you look like my mother did. And you smell like my mother smelled. Thank you, I love you. And then he left. And Jean Thompson got down on her knees in front of her chair at the desk. And she put her face down her hands and she pled to God to give her another chance and she would love all of the students. Well, the next day, Teddy came and she went out of her way to help him. By the end of the year, he had moved past several students who were down in the class, and he wasn't the best, but he wasn't the poorest, and he was ahead of some. He graduated that year from the fifth grade and went on to the sixth. Four years later, she got a letter. Dear Mrs. Thompson, today I graduated from high school. I was second in my class. I thought you would like to know. I love you, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, she got another letter. Dear Mrs. Thompson, College hasn't been easy, but I graduated, and I wanted you to know you've been a very dear friend, and I love you, Teddy Stollard. And then four years later, dear Mrs. Thompson, what do you know about that? Today I am J. Theodore Stollard, M.D. My father died last year, and as you know, my mom died many years ago. I'm getting married in a month, and I wonder if you'd come and stand in the place my mother would have stood. And Jean Thompson went to the wedding, and she stood where the mother should have stood because she deserved to be there. I think that's the kind of thing we talk about when we talk about having a heart like unto God's own heart. There's a little verse by Henry Drummond. I live for myself, I thought for myself, for myself and none beside just as if Jesus had never lived, as if Jesus had never died. Down in, in the uh, south of part of Tennessee, Van Johnson was going to Leoma High School, and his coach had said to him, if you'll really put out on the field for you, for me, I'll really be there when you need me. And so uh, young uh, Van Johnson really went to work on the football team. He did everything he could, and and he became the outstanding uh, blocker of the year as a freshman. And then that uh, year, somehow during making a block or a tackle, he broke his neck and was uh, paralyzed from the neck down. When he came to in the hospital, and he was in this full body cast, I suppose, there were many people that they were there with him, mostly the football players and others that he'd been playing with, but his coach was there. And as the coach got ready, he turned and and said, uh, well, I'll be there when you need me, and I'll see you in a few days. And uh, young Van Johnson wondered how often he had come back. Well, he left just the other day, and as the coach left, he said, I'll see you in a few days. And he'd been coming for 24 years. What does one who has a heart like unto God's own heart have? I was up in Canada, and 
And uh, we had a Nathan Eldon Tanner camp. It's like what we call a film on, and some of you are acquainted with that. It's training for adult leaders. I, uh, they had a polar bear club, and you had to swim at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning in the Elbow River. It had snowed 8 inches, a 1,000 feet higher elevation than we were, and, and uh, <clears throat> they thought I had to join, and I didn't have a swimming suit, so they drove into Calgary 50 miles and got we one and, and returned. I, I've never been able to wade into cold water. Just, you know, it, it's just like cutting your finger off a little bit at a time, so I just usually dive in all the way at one terrible shock, and it's all over. That morning, I dove in and swam out the middle of the Elbow River. It was about mid-chest deep or so. And uh, I was standing there, and a stake president drove in, and he came up right next to me. Now, this stake president had driven all the way from a distant city. He'd brought his family. He had to stay overnight somewhere. And I'm sure he'd spent a great deal of money getting there. As he uh, came up, I realized that... that, uh, uh, this man who had probably spent all of his family vacation and almost all else and uh, to get there and to go through this training and had a little left. He had an old panel delivery with the wooden panels on the side, a panel uh, station wagon, I guess what they called them. And uh, anyway, uh, the tires were pretty well worn. And so when he came up right next to me, he said, did I have my glasses on? And I said, I don't know, did you? And he said, I think I did. And I said, well, go back to the bank and check. He went back over to the bank then he, he, he swam back over and he said, I did. I thought about this man who had spent all this money to go through this training, and I knew he didn't have enough to buy two or three hundred dollars worth of glasses. I turned my back and walked upstream 20 or 30 feet, and I said, Heavenly Father, I know this state president can't afford these glasses. Please help me to find his glasses. I laid down and started floating down and had an impression. I stopped. Mind, it was six o'clock in the morning. The sun hadn't even come up. It was just twilight light, but the sun had not come all the way up. And I thought I saw something shining on the bottom of this beautiful clear water in the Elbow River. And I dove down and pulled his glasses off of the bottom, handed them to this great stake present. I think if you have a heart like unto God's own heart, you're inter- interested in little things that may not be important to a lot of other people, but would be very, very important to the person involved. Well. God bless you. It's been wonderful to be here with you. I think if the Savior were here today, I think he would say to you, to all of you who have served missions, thanks so much for serving missions, working hard and sacrificing and doing all you did. I think he would say, thank you for studying, for doing what you're doing here and preparing for the rest of your life. Thanks for being clean and sweet and pure. Thanks for being loyal to the Church and sustaining the apostles and prophets. I think he'd say, I love you, and I forgive you, and God bless you, and I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.